The following is a presentation of the Premier Dance Network. Hi everyone, Kimberly Falker here, the founder and CEO of the Premier Dance Network, the only podcast network dedicated solely to the world of dance. And welcome to Pod to Chat with your host, Barry Corellis. Hello and welcome back. Thanks for coming to chat. I am your host, Barry Corellis, and you are listening to Pod to Chat Talking Dance on the Premier Dance Network. In this bi-weekly podcast, I candidly offer educational conversations and thoughtful analysis on all things dance. With my vast background as a director, choreographer, instructor, and dancer, I am happy to share my 17 plus years of experience with you, whether you're a professional dancer or just listening in for an insider's look into our fascinating art form. So put your earbuds in, grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's talk dance. Hi, Melissa, and welcome to Pot of Chat Talking Dance. Hi, Barry, and welcome to Pirouettes from the Past. Ooh, did you guys hear that? There are two podcasts happening at exactly the same time. It's really exciting. It's exciting for both of us. We've had crossover episodes before, but never actually happening at the same time in a real-life crossover. I know, right? And so, so Melissa and I, uh, we've been friends for uh, a while, and I, I think it's interesting because if, you, if you've been listening to the Premier Dance Network for some time, uh, maybe you've heard different podcast hosts, but there, I don't know if there's ever actually, have you heard any like crossovers between podcast hosts on the network? Not like this. No, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's really cool. And I barely ever do any type of like interview or collaboration on my podcast. So it's always, I think on Pod chat, it's a treat when, uh, we get to have a, a guest. Um, but yeah, so I, I first met Melissa, I think that it was when we, when, when we first started podcasting. Was it the beginning of the Premier Dance Network? Yeah, I think shortly after. I believe your podcast started first and mine a little bit later than that. But yeah. we were both living in Philadelphia, and uh-huh. so I got in touch and said maybe we could meet in person. Yeah, and so we actually ended up meeting in Washington Square Park in, in Philadelphia, and we just hit it off, and we've been friends ever since. Um, and I, I've been a big fan of Melissa's work, and she has a very interesting relationship to dance. Um, and it's been cool to see how we've been able to come together, even though career-wise, we haven't always been exactly on the same path, but we almost, I, I feel that we get to enrich each other. Yes. Well, we share a passion for ballet, though we come at it differently. I am not a professional dancer, never have been, never yes. wanted to be, but I did take, take ballet class for many, many, many years, 14 years, which is a lot for a recreational dancer, yeah. I think, all the way through high school. Mm-hmm. And now I'm a history professor, as those of you who are pirouettes from the past listeners know, and I have a new book coming out about the history of ballet class in America. It's and exciting. It's very exciting. <laughs> it takes a long time to write a book. And Barry has been a wonderful resource, and I really want to thank you for that. Um, there's pictures of Barry and me both in the book, so oh you can take a look at that. And um, lots of quotes, and I've just, you know, I've really appreciated the help that you've offered as I've been working on this history. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, and it's it's been really cool to get some information that I wouldn't necessarily have sought out, uh, but it's been cool because I've been able to share some of that information in my classes that I teach. Um, so... It's, it's just good feels all around. Yes. <laughs> um, so for those of you at Pirates from the Past, I want to give you just a little bit of background into my, into what, what I do. Um, I, again, my name is Barry Corollis. 
I work at, I teach at Broadway Dance Center and uh, I'm on the ballet and contemporary faculty there. I also danced with Pacific Northwest Ballet in Seattle, Washington for several years and Houston Ballet, followed by a freelance career where I traveled around the country. And then about four years ago, I retired from performance very young, around the age of 31, and I started transitioning into teaching. And during that time, I also started writing and I now write for Dance Magazine. I have this podcast and now things are just evolving more to the point where I'm judging at Youth American Grand Prix and I'm starting a company named Movement Headquarters Ballet Company. And so Melissa and I were talking before we decided to record this and we we're recording this a little bit early because we're very, very busy. I was saying, I hate saying the word busy. We're just very tasked people. Um, but yeah, so, so we're very busy and we wanted to make sure that we got this content out for you guys so that you got it when it was ready. And this was the best time that we could get together. It's actually gonna be New Year's tomorrow. That's right, do you, is, do you have big plans? I'm coming actually down to Philly. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so, but you're taking the train tonight and I'm taking the bus tonight. So we'll be going side by side, just different modes of transportation. Yes. But yeah, so, um, uh, where was I? I was, uh, starting your company. Help me. That's yeah. That's, I keep on getting distracted by, by my company because <laughs> it's a lot of stuff to do. But so by the time that this podcast comes out, I'll actually have had my launch performances. So you'll get to hear all about that. If you listen to, to previous episodes and future episodes. So again, my podcast is pod to chat talking dance and Melissa's podcast is my podcast is pirouettes from the past. And so for pod to chat list, talking dance listeners who aren't as familiar with me, I'm a history professor and director of women's and gender studies at Rowan university in Glassboro, New Jersey. That's one of the state public campuses in New Jersey, which does by the way, have a strong dance program, although I'm not formally affiliated with it. And I um, have two research hats. I write about American Jewish women's history, and I also write about the history of childhood and youth in America. And so this book about ballet class in America is very much a history of childhood. And I'm interested primarily in the ways that ballet class became part of American childhood, especially over the course of the 20th century. So on Pirouettes from the Past, um, my listeners will know, and now your listeners can too, there's lots of episodes to go check out. Not as many as you have, but plenty of episodes, lots of content <laughs> I'm there. just very talkative. <laughs> yeah. But I've been <laughs> tracing different elements of the history of ballet and ballet class in America as I've uncovered them while I've been doing the research and writing this book. And so that's what brings us together here today too, yeah. so we can talk about my book, but also about the history of ballet class, because I'm guessing that many of our listeners for both podcasts took ballet class at some point in their lives for even a little while. And the question is why? How did that come to be the case? So that's what we'll talk about. Exactly. Yeah. And, and one thing that I really do appreciate about Melissa is that she has so many different facets of knowledge and it, still that she has such a passion for dance that she was willing to take the time off from the other the other things that she she's doing in her career so that she could uh, create something for the the dance focused audience uh, to, to read so that's why we're gonna that's why we got together that's what we're gonna talk about so before we get straight to the book um, I wanted to ask you well, we can both answer this. How, how did you get started in, in taking ballet classes or dance classes in general? Well, my mother and I have discussed this in the context of writing this book and we don't, neither of us really remembers did I ask for ballet class or did she, did she just assume that I was a four-year-old girl and so therefore should go to ballet because class? Because that's what a lot of people just do. Yes, and that's what she did. My mm -hmm. mother also took ballet class for many years also, actually in her day. My grandmother took dance classes. I have aunts and um, not, an uncle, not uncles actually, but cousins, male cousins. Mm -hmm. And 
sisters-in-law and my sister and my niece, lots of people in my family have taken ballet class at some point for some length of time. And so that's how I first started. And I just, from a very early age, just loved it. Mm -hmm. And so that became my major extracurricular activity um, outside of school. Do you, do you remember the like one or two things that you really loved about it? Or did you just remember the feeling of loving it? I loved the music. I still love music and classical music, um, and I just I loved the movement. I found I found it very something about the disciplined but free movement really appealed to me mm-hmm. all the way up. And then I enjoyed the fact that although I was certainly never destined for any professional life, and nor did I ever really want that, but I did get better. I mean, I took ballet class for a long time. I mean, if you're going to do something <laughs> over and over again, it's like yes, <laughs> cross your fingers hope that you, you you hope that you would get yes. better. And I yeah. did achieve you know certain levels of competence, and we. Made Maybe we'll get back to this later, but the studio I went to um, was a Cicchetti studio, and I took the Cicchetti tests, you know, every couple and, of years. And where was that? Was that, that was, in Philadelphia? It was in Dallas, actually. Okay, in Dallas, so Texas. are you from Dallas, Texas? I grew up partially in Dallas and partially in Baltimore, and cool. so I took lessons in Dallas um, at one place, I think, just a year or two, but then steadily at a studio named Arabesque. Miss Wanda, if you're listening, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> And Miss Angela, actually. The, the studio is still there, although it's different now. Um, mm-hmm. That I will come back to a little bit later. Cool. And so I stayed there through eighth grade, and then my family moved to Baltimore. And one of the first things I insisted my parents do was find me someplace new to go. And in Baltimore, I took classes with an old Russian dancer named Miss Ellen. Nobody knew or could pronounce her last name. Lost in the mists of history. She Very had, common. Yes. <laughs> she had turned her garage into a studio. There were only girls at that studio. Um, and that I continued with her through the rest of high school. Awesome. So uh, at what point did you stop taking class? When I graduated from high school. I was moving on to a different stage of life, and also my knees kind of gave out on me. I have slightly hyperextended knees, and those years of point work, probably especially since I was not doing it every day and didn't Mm -hmm. build, I built up some strength, but maybe not enough to you know, I've outswayed the suede knees. And so my knees kind of went, which is what had happened to my mother too, around Mm -hmm. my age. And so that's the point at which I stopped. um, And I did not take ballet class again for about 25 years until I was working on this book and then went back to it a little bit. So you've come back to it. A little bit. A little bit. So (laughs) uh, have you found anything new in in your, I guess, in, in finding your love again for, for dance well, stepping into the class? Yes, it was very interesting to me actually when I went back to ballet class. I really knew how to take a class. I did not need a beginner beginner class, maybe not even an advanced beginner class. My body certainly didn't do what it had done 25 years yeah. before. I'm not naturally flexible and I, you know, I, I never will be again when I was <laughs> when I was 18. Um, but I knew how to take a class. The only thing that was a problem was that I still, in my head, I still had all the chiquetti arms mm-hmm. for port bras and every place I went went and took ballet class as an adult used different arms and I was constantly wrong (laughs) and I had to kind of get my head around that a little bit and and something that's very interesting actually is that as time has gone by like most things you would hope that they would evolve uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of the techniques have evolved too so there was a point where chiquetti dancers were taught to to lift their leg in front of the arm and now they've slowly started to move their arms forward so even if it was a chiquetti class you might find that some of those uh technical pieces of, of, of information that you had back then may have even evolved. So that's right. So I don't know if I'm expert enough at this point to say one way or the other about that, but I have, I well, have enjoyed it. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and I have, I have enjoyed it, but my hips were not so happy now that I'm middle-aged. And so, you know, I am not taking ballet class regularly now, but I did, I have enjoyed coming back to it. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. 
as I have it. So that's my ballet story in terms of my actually doing it. Of course, cool. I've remained a ballet fan all these years. I'm a subscriber to the Pennsylvania Ballet and have been for 20 years. I you know, go to ballet performances whenever I, I get a chance. I've always kept up. I've read Dance Magazine on and off. This has been a passion and a love of mine even before I came to write this book, which is, of course, why I wanted to write the book. It combined mm. both my scholarly interests with my personal experience um, and passion for dance and particularly for ballet. But of course, that's a very different trajectory than a mm. professional dancer like you. So yeah. how did you come to ballet? Yeah, so I I didn't want, I mean, I don't, I, I was too young to know. I don't know if I ever wanted to take a dance class. Um, I was too young when I actually started to know. Now, I wasn't forced into it either. It wasn't like my mom was like, he's going to take ballet. Uh, so the way that it happened was I was two years old and my sister was four, year, four years old. And she was taking, I believe it was one of those ballet combo, ballet top combo classes. It's like a 45 minute class. It's almost like essentially creative movement. Um, and so my, my sister was, was taking that and I would have to wait in the lobby when we were coming to pick her up. And I... I don't remember, but I guess I was being very rambunctious and it was starting to become a regular issue every week that like five minutes before class was over, I would run into the class, interrupt the class and my mom couldn't stop me. So I, I give a lot of credit to the, the, the instructor of that, the classroom, because if this had happened to me in the past, I, I don't know if I would have reacted the same, but she didn't see me running into the studio as a bad interruption. She saw a male dancer running into the studio. So it was essentially, she, she was like, well, maybe if I can convince him to stay here, then we'll have a guy in the school because it's, it, as most of you know, if you have been involved in dance and if you haven't been in dance, that's why I'm going to explain this. But so, uh, there are very few male dancers in, in many schools throughout the country. A majority of the major dance organizations that have schools attached to them in the bigger cities, they'll have more guys in, in their programs. But in uh, smaller towns, smaller cities, more rural areas, there are frequently one to no boys. Uh, and at this school in this, the, we, the, sub, the western suburbs of Pencil, uh, Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, um, there were no boys in the school. So she saw an opportunity when she saw this child running in. So she turned to me and, uh, of course, this is through my mom, um, but she, <laughs> I remember the exact moment. Um, but so she turned to me and she was, she asked me, she said, do you want to be in here? And I said, yes. And she said, well, if you can pay attention and you can follow me, you can stay. But if you can't, then you have to leave. And I thought that was cool. My sister was in the class and she was older than me and I wanted to be like doing what my sister was doing. So I, I participated and I stuck with it. And that was really how I first got into class. Um, so I danced very, very, very recreationally once a week as a child until I was five. I quit when I was five to do Taekwondo, to mm -hmm. play the piano, to start doing other activities. But I found myself coming back to dance at the age of seven. So I was a competition Taekwondo uh, guy and I would go to different events on the circuit, different competitions. And our dojang was right next door to a local studio. And the, I actually just had coffee with uh, the director of that studio the other day. So obviously we have now a long, a long-term relationship, but she is, is such a smart businesswoman and she was thinking, well, I need guys. And there are all these boys in this, this karate school because 
that's what happens. Usually you have things that are a little bit more aggressive that society sees as macho or uh, masculine and the guys go there. And then you have things like ballet, which often, uh, and I don't necessarily agree with this, but often people see it as effeminate. So that's where the girls should go. But so they had almost like the girls room and the boys room right next door to each other. And she said, well, I don't like this. And I like it to be separate like this. And I, I would, I could use some boys in my school. So she invited a couple of us to be the soldiers in the battle scene of the Nutcracker. And I uh, performed a, a form and I killed the mice with the form. And then after Nutcracker, she offered for me to take a ballet class for free for the next six months. And that was pretty much the beginning. And then I, I took one ballet class a week until I was about 12, 13. And then I really truly fell hard in love with dance. And I took everything from ballet to tap and jazz and modern. And at the age of 16, 15, 16, I fell in love with ballet. And that's when I really started to focus in on becoming a ballet dancer. And that's how I worked my way towards my career. So okay. That is our history, people. We want to talk about the book, though, because I... So we, we, we sat down. Melissa and I sat down for a little bit, uh, and she interviewed me. So I have a, a few little ideas of content, but I haven't actually read the book. I've seen a, a prologue, and I, I've seen the, the table of contents. And uh, it's, it's, the book is going to be coming out soon. So before we even get started... Do we want to say when or do we want to wait? Big surprise at the end. Oh, let's make it all a big surprise at the end. Okay, Stay tuned to the to very wait. end and you'll get a special <laughs> offer and special information. Okay, cool. <laughs> so that means that we get to talk about the book so we can get to get to that point. Um, so, uh, Melissa, first off, what, what is the name of your book? The book, it has a very basic name. It's called Ballet Class and American History. Clear and to the point. <laughs> exactly. Like um, and... It, what what exactly is is your book about? Okay, so the, what the title what, what's important about that title is that I'm writing about the history of ballet class in America, in the United States, okay. and actually in pre United States in America and the colonies too a little bit. Um, the history of ballet class across the world would be too much for any one book, and so this book is very much focused on the American experience. However, you can't talk about the history of ballet or ballet class in America without the global context and the older history of ballet. Yeah, it's such a worldly art. I mean, I've, I've had teachers from all over the world, from Russian teachers to French teachers, American teachers. So That's that right. And sense. not even just Western. Um, one of the major toe point shoe makers is Japanese. The Chinese have a very... Um, you know, significant heritage with ballet now that, that was not true until the 20th century but mm. it's so there really is a worldwide art um, what I'm interested in the book is really the way that ballet class the recreational ballet class primarily became part of American childhood over the course of the 20th century and how that happened across all kinds of lines about race and gender and class and sexual orientation and the way that all kinds of children have taken ballet class. There were challenges, and it would be silly to say that it wasn't probably mostly white middle-class girls for much of its history, but that is, there's some kind of, there's some complications there that are interesting to think about, and that's, that is changing in a, you know, good and healthy and productive ways. So, so while it is a history uh, in the book, you're also still talking about some very relevant current uh, things that are happening in the world today. Yes, definitely. So the way the book is structured is that the first part of it is really kind of straight up historical. I look at a very, I do a kind of very brief envelope, back of the back of the envelope scribble, you know, history of ballet and then what that was like in America. There were ballet dancers in the United, early United States as early as the 1790s. And this is a good example of how world history had an impact on ballet in America. 
there were French dancers in Haiti, and after the French, which had, was a French colony, and after the Haitian Revolution, some of those dancers came to the United States to start teaching and performing. And so as early as the 1790s, there were already ballet dancers in the United States um, through mu much of the 1800s. Philadelphia, not New York, was the dance capital of the United States. Philadelphia. Philadelphia. <laughs> I have a whole podcast about that. Pirouettes Born the past listeners will know. Um, it was not New York, surprisingly, but it was, it was Philadelphia for you know, mm -hmm. most of the 19th century. There were really important dancers from abroad who came to the United States and toured everywhere. People like Fanny Elsler, who was an Austrian ballerina who came to the U.S. and thought she would, you know, give a few performances and ended up staying for two years and making over $100,000, which in the 1840s is big, big, big money. Um, so there was an audience. And as more dancers came to the United States, something I'll come back to in a little while, um, there was more of an audience for dance and more of an idea that, hey, maybe we could do this too. And so there was more of an interest growing in ballet class. Hmm. So in the earlier part, I'd say through most of the 19th century, most of the people in ballet class were headed or thinking about professional careers. Many of them were from theater families. They already knew how to do other kinds of things with their bodies. They were used to using their bodies on stage in various ways. Um, and do then- you, Do you think that the reason that it was so professionally focused was because we didn't have as many of the niceties that we have today where it was like if you're not like people didn't necessarily do things on this scale recreationally because they were spending too much time doing things that were necessary well that's certainly true for most of the population but even the upper middle class population in cities would not necessarily have seen performing on the stage as something respectable so it just wasn't something they would do if you you know many of them went to dance classes but they were social dance classes wow. they learned how to waltz or to do the polka <laughs> do you, do you, what what exactly did they see that was, was not respectable about it was like the skin showing or just being on the stage was something that was considered lowbrow you know wow. we're we're used today to thinking, for instance, of Shakespeare as this very highbrow, elaborate cultural production. But Shakespeare wrote for the masses, was performed by actors who were not really acceptable in polite company. Mm -hmm. There was a longer history of being on the stage as being not quite the thing. Wow. And, I, had, I had no idea. Yeah. That. That's fascinating. And so that, that spilled over into um, theatrical dance, including ballet as well, for, for quite a while. That changed with the 20th century. But for mm -hmm. most of the 19th century, that remained the case. Mm -hmm. Um, so there were basically no recreational ballet classes in the U.S. Wow. until the, well until the 20th century. Well, even even at that time, if you if you think about how much science has changed things over over the years, people didn't even really know about fitness back then. I mean, I'm sure that they knew like <laughs> I, knew, I knew that they knew that if they worked out, their muscles would get stronger. Yeah. But like, I, I'm sure that they had very specific workouts that they would do if they did do that, but they wouldn't necessarily see it as something that people do today where they take it to keep their bodies in shape and to elongate the muscles. And well, it's kind of interesting, actually. There's another example of how world history intersects with American history and ballet. Um, actually, a lot of immigrant groups who came to the United States in the mid-19th century did bring with them what they called physical culture mm -hmm. ideas at the time. So the Swedish, for instance, came and had a whole system of calisthenics and weights and the German Germans had their own system. There was something called the French Del Sartre system, mm -hmm. and a lot of these, a lot of this interest in physical culture would eventually actually lead more to modern dance than to ballet. Mm -hmm. But the idea that regular people should work on, as you say, elongating or strengthening or you know increasing their flexibility, that was not totally new, but it didn't go in the direction of ballet necessarily. Interesting. Cult. So you were talking about how classes there weren't really any recreational classes that were available. No, so that begins to change at the beginning of the 20th century when the other issue here, and this is where the history of childhood comes in, is that most children worked 
they were, didn't have time, they didn't pursue recreational activities. Um, and even middle class children very often were supposed to be spending their free time such as it was usefully. And you know, taking various kinds of lessons was not always considered useful in that way. Um, with the turn of the 20th century, there are some changes, and um, I'll, I'll come back to this a little bit later. Okay. So the first part of the book traces that history and also traces what a ballet class is and has been and what it has become, you know, some basic, like the basics of what a ballet class is, um, things like the five positions, things like that um, for, for, you know, for the book's purposes, and talks about also the history of what people wear to ballet class, leotards and tights and tutus. People shouldn't be wearing tutus really in recreational class, but... It does happen. <laughs> yes, it does I, happen. Usually <laughs> in the younger classes or in open classes. Right. I teach at Broadway Dance Center and every once in a while, mm-hmm. you'll have somebody that's of age yes. <laughs> and they show up in a tutu. And, and it usually never happens in the lowest level class. It almost always happens in a higher level class and you just go, I don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> So but there's a history, though. Those, all those things have yeah. their own history. There's a history of point shoes. If you heard on Barry's podcast you know, over the summer, there's a long, you know, elaborate history of point shoes. There's also a history to leotards and tights. The, you know, Jules Leotard, it's actually named after a guy. He was a circus mm-hmm. performer. Yeah, um, and, a lot of people don't, don't yeah. know that <laughs> women wear leotards, but they were made by men. Yes. So there's a whole history to what people wear to ballet class. So I look at that. And then um, I look at some of the major developments that were specific to the United States, where unlike many other countries, there was no state-sponsored centralized ballet school. Mm-hmm. So in France, for instance, the Paris Opera Ballet School was kind of the central state-supported school. That was true um, in Russia as well at the Imperial Theater. And all of these ballet schools, they were not just state-supported, but they were also attached to the companies. Yes. So it was the idea that there were these large dance companies that they were training their, their students to eventually join those companies. Which also meant that in places like France and Russia, and then later after the Russian Revolution, still the Soviet Union, it meant that actually, unless you were incredibly talented and had been placed in one of these schools, you also didn't take ballet class. There weren't a lot of recreational ballet classes in those countries either. Yeah, and not, and not just extremely talented. One thing that, uh, and this practice is still done uh, today in some of the Russian schools, they will take the prospective students and they'll pull out before they even do anything they'll pull out a tape measure they'll measure their neck their head their mm-hmm. legs they'll take their legs they'll push them up to their to, up to the side and the front and the back and see how high they go so it, it wasn't just a matter of talent it was sometimes you didn't need any talent you just had to fit fit the, into that box right. and if you did that then they would do whatever they could to make sure that you uh, were able to build your your skill level But in the United States, where there were no such schools and, frankly, no such companies until well into the 20th century, it it developed very differently. And basically, ballet class became available to anyone who could pay for it. And so although that's a a plus in the sense that it opened up the door or the possibility of ballet class to many, many, many more children, um, it's a negative in the sense that quality control then became an immediate and persistent issue. Still an issue. Yes. Yes. Immediate, old, new, and constant. Right. So that's a long lasting (laughs) difference. And um, actually just for those um, of you who are interested, England had a, although there was a royal ballet in England, um, England had a kind of hybrid situation where they did have some recreational schools in addition to the Mm -hmm. professional schools attached and so regular ordinary kids did have access to ballet class in England in the way in a way they didn't for a long time in France mm-hmm. or Russia very interesting yeah. so that's the first and then the next part of the book talks about the themes um, and these are some in reference to the issues you were mentioning before things like there's a chapter on boys in ballet there's a chapter on race and ballet which is a very difficult history in the United States there are chapters on 
a ballet in popular culture, like television and movies. There's chapters on critiques of ballet that have come from the medical establishment and also from feminists. And also one of my favorite parts, I have to say, of the book is a section on the early relationship between modern dance and ballet, which was extremely contentious. Oh, this is something we've talked. We want. We did actually a different podcast crossover where we didn't meet in person, but where we each talked about elements of that relationship. So. Yeah, I, I when I was dancing with Oakland Ballet, which I've talked about a lot in my podcast because it was a crazy experience. But we were working with uh, there were one or two choreographers that they they teach at a university in Oakland. I can't remember off the top of my head what the name of it is right now. That's what happens when you get like three hours of sleep, but you know, we work hard. But, but yeah, so they had, this is back in 2014, they had only started to incorporate ballet classes into their, they, they were a modern dance school, but they had only started to incorporate those ballet classes into their, their programming because there was such a rift between the idea, like the, the ballet world and, and, the, and the modern world, and the idea that the ballet world looked down, or I mean, this wasn't how it was, but it's almost what it seemed like, that the ballet world looked down on the modern world, and the modern world thought that the ballet world was very like snooty and uppity and, and looking down on everybody that wasn't a part of that. So uh, it, that was a long time ago, but it, it, it still to a degree is around today. Um, that is one thing that I try in my experience being between different worlds with ballet contemporary and modern I try to bring everybody together because uh, ballet is very useful and uh, yeah that was a, a challenging period yeah and so historically that was a big issue as well and so that actually the, the, the things that they said about each other are at the time I'm sure they didn't see it this way but in retrospect they're actually kind of hilarious so mm-hmm. I enjoyed I enjoyed doing that research to see cool. how they sniped at each other it was kind of fun uh, so I'm, I'm kind of curious uh, how exactly did you go about doing your research for this? Okay, well, that's a good question. Um, research is very time consuming. Just so you know, it took about six and a half years to do this book from the beginning that's to the end. That's a long time. Which is not unusual. My other books, this is my fourth book, by the way, and this is that is a pretty standard. It's like 24, 25 years worth of work. It's a long time. That's amazing. <laughs> that's what historians yeah. do. Um, or, well, some historians, that's what you know, kind of like academic historians like me tend to do. We write books, it takes a while. We do publish articles and things along the way, but it's still, these are long-term projects. Mm. Um, This one's a little different. Um, In the past, when I've done a lot of research on children or on American Jewish women, I've done a lot, I've read a lot of diaries and letters and yearbooks and those kinds of what we call primary sources, original documents, first-hand accounts. I did read as much of that as I could find for this book, but there wasn't enough material just like that to write a whole book out of. So instead, I also added many, many kinds of sources. I read Dance Magazine from 1927 till today. Every issue, I skipped every issue. That's a lot of Dance Magazine. It is, and oh my God. And I would like to shout out to the University of the Arts in Philadelphia, which thank God has most of it in hard copy. Because if I'd had to read that on microfilm, I would never have made it. (laughs) I did read some of it on microfilm, but the University of the Arts had it, had most of the run in hard copy, and I'm very grateful to them. I spent a lot of time in their basement, so thank you to them. Um, I, so I, I read other dance magazines as well. Um, I also read anything I could find about ballet in major newspapers like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, 
older newspapers that don't still publish, um, local papers that covered ballet in various so, ways. So when you did that research, did you do that in a library or could you access it online? Just because if anybody's interested yeah. in looking at different types of articles, it might be helpful B- for them both, to know. Both. Um, historians will tell you that you can't do serious historical research just by looking at stuff online. You mm-hmm. often have to go to the materials. So one another example, a category of sources that I used would be the records from different ballet schools. And those you definitely cannot look at online. You have to go to where they are held. So for mm-hmm. instance, I read the Atlanta Ballet Records, which started off as a regional company in the 20s and then became professional later. And those records are held at the Center for um, History at um, the Atlanta History Center. So I had so to go to Georgia. To yes, I had to go to Georgia and read things there. A great reason to go down to Georgia and you're probably inside. <laughs> yes, inside the whole time. Yes. Um, but the I also read memoirs of professional dancers and teachers and choreographers. Some published to those you could get out of the library, although sometimes the books are obscure, but yeah. some of them are not published. Did you have a favorite? I don't know. Um, I'm curious because I've read I've read a few, yeah, but yeah, I um, you know some of them are ghost written, and sometimes the people write them themselves. The, one of the most beautiful kind of literary memoirs is called Winter Season by Tony Bentley, huh. who was with the New York City Ballet for a while, and she is also the ghost writer for a few other uh, d- dancer biographies and autobiographies. So she she's a wonderful writer. Wow. Um, I also read, so I read that, I read, I don't need hundreds, really, of children's books about ballet. I have a big section in one of my chapters about books for children, both fiction and nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to look at what the major themes were in a lot of those children's novels about ballet to see how even kids who never took a ballet class still know a lot about ballet. How is that? Well, often it's not just that they have friends who take class. They've often read about it in these books that have been published since at least the beginning of the 20th century. I read all kinds of teaching manuals. A lot of this stuff is really only available at archives. And another source that was wonderful, and this is where I did a lot of my research, research, is at the Jerome Robbins Dance Division of the New York Public Library. Oh, that's fantastic. A, I've been going yeah. there since I... Yeah. So when I went to school American Ballet, our dorms were in Lincoln Center. So pretty much I could just step outside my, my bedroom door, go down the elevator, and then yeah. walk into the library. And they have everything from dance books uh, to syllabi to videos yes. of performances that most people would never be able to see but anybody can actually get just get a membership to this library walk in and watch the footage uh, of any piece that is recorded in that that library it's an amazing amazing resource and another thing that it holds that i did a lot of um, research on is oral histories the transcripts of oral histories with all kinds of dancers again and teachers and choreographers and people associated with ballet just a wealth of information so I pieced together lots and lots and lots of different kinds of sources to put this book together. And that is why there are almost 70 pages of footnotes <laughs> at the end of the book. <laughs> well, so, so out of all the research that you did, is there one specific thing that you read or, or saw that maybe touched you the most or that spoke to you the most or really stood out to you or that was really memorable? I really enjoyed reading the local the records of local schools, like the ones in, that I read in Atlanta. I also read some of those original records in Philadelphia. Um, there were a number of African-American ballet schools, ballet studios in Philadelphia, where, um, like in many cities, ballet schools were segregated, just mm. like everything else. Really? Uh, yes. And so and in a place like Philadelphia? Oh, yes. In Philadelphia, in D.C., in New York. I mean, this is why, you know, the schools like Jones, the Jones 
Haywood School in DC or the Dance Theater of Harlem for that matter mm-hmm. started originally because there was no access to ballet class for was, many. Was Philadelphia and Philadelphia part of that? School? Yes. So Joan Myers Brown, who started Philadelphia, had started the yeah. school that be, uh, actually came before that, was a student of several of the schools um, hmm. in Philadelphia. And at the time that she started her school, it was still the case that there was segregation. The situation improved, but still, um, there were a lot of problems with African-American and other people of color trying to just get access to recreational ballet class, let alone to careers in the ballet world. And it's still a conversation yes, today, yes. which is, that's a whole other podcast <laughs> yes. to talk about. <laughs> so I am um, reading the records of those local schools. I really, I really enjoyed that. I like working with that kind of archival material that nobody looks at, that you have to wear gloves to kind of turn the pages and they yeah. crumble when you look at them. And it was just really moving to see what, what a sense of mission a lot of those teachers felt. They really felt they were bringing something special to the children that they taught. Even if the children were not special dancers, that wasn't yeah. what mattered to them. What mattered to them was bringing the love of ballet as an art form to as many people as possible. And I found that very moving and enjoyed reading about it. Wow. Uh, that's, yeah. I mean, that, that is one thing that, that you hear about dance. As actually, today we had a, a winter intensive at Broadway Dance Center and we had a Q&A. And there was just a conversation about how yeah, it's great if a dancer can become a professional, if they go through the whole process of training and then uh, going to a finishing school and then have, making a career out of it. But there's such a value to creating community and it can really improve the lives of so many people in those different communities. It can improve the emotional health, it can improve the physical health, it can bring people together. It can create a, uh, a talking point that maybe people couldn't initially express vocally, but then if they, they find a way to embody that in their dance, then that can start a conversation. And that wouldn't be, that, that's something that wouldn't necessarily be there to the general public, because other people would just be watching other people express themselves, but to, uh, to open it rec- up and up, up recreationally and allow anybody to embody those things, it, it can be a very uh, impactful thing for communities. And that, that's one thing with recreational dance that I see very great value in. I also think, maybe this is just the historian in me, but I also think there's something really wonderful about feeling connected to such a long heritage. We're talking mm-hmm. about an art form that's hundreds of years old and that lots of people you know, around you have done. And it's just, it's something, it, it creates a sense of connection to the past that I also find very valuable. And people, people act differently when they feel a part of something important. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily have to be something important on the scale of like world peace. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a really big scale. But just the sense of, it, it's kind of like if you think about a city, if, if people feel like it's their city, they're less likely to throw trash on the streets. It's things like mm-hmm. that. Where So if you feel like you're a part of a community, it's going to enhance how you, how you, who you surround yourself with, how you act, how you connect with other people. And it is a worldwide community because there are, even though of course there have been changes over time, there are things that are just standard. You go into any ballet class in the world and you know, the five positions, even if no one teaches third position anymore, still the five positions are the same. The terminology is French everywhere. The, you know, the language of movement is similar, and that's also something that can bring people together across all kinds of borders. Yeah, you can, you can speak different languages, but in the end, we're all taught the language of dance. Yes. And it's, it's a magical, magical thing. All right, I got some questions for you. Because I was looking through your, your table of content. You've been, thank you so much for sharing all that information. Uh, you, you've, I think you've done my job, and you've, taken a, you've, you've given some answers to things that I already wanted to ask so I'm going to look through my notes here. Uh, I wanted to talk about 
so you dedicated an entire chapter to Russians coming to America. And so as you were saying that your book is mostly focused on American recreational mm-hmm. dance but uh, and, and ballet class. But I'm, I'm curious why you felt it was important to have an entire chapter dedicated to Russians in a book about American mm-hmm. ballet class. Okay, so that chapter is called The Russians Are Coming. Uh, although oh, actually, yeah. <laughs> when we read the chapter, the chapter is actually about European teachers and their influence on American ballet class. So it's not only Russians, because there were, there were other groups of teachers, particularly from Italy um, and from France in the early years, who also had a big impact on American ballet class. America had no ballet company. It had no ballet school. I mean, the, in the earlier years of ballet in America, it all was imported. <laughs> and around, around what time was that? So, exactly? I mean, through well into the 20th century, that was the case. I mean, there were, there were you know, in fact, um, when George Balanchine started with Lincoln Kirstein and others, the School of American Ballet in 1934, his big thing was he wanted an American ballet school because even though he was even Russian, though it was led by a Russian, even though it was led exactly. by a Russian, but his idea was that it would be an American ballet school to take the best of kind of American bodies and bring, you know, this art form to make it American. Mm-hmm. There were definitely other people who were doing that during the thirties. Okay. And that's important mm-hmm. to mention. Balanchine gets a lot of attention, including in my book, but he was not the only one. Are you talking about like Lou Christensen? Yes. I'm talking about the Christensen mm-hmm. brothers. There were several of them. Um, yeah, who had been, whose family had been ballet and music and dance and art teachers on the West Coast since the early, very earliest 20th century. There were also Catherine and Dorothy Littlefield in Philadelphia who were really important. Um, in fact, they were, they were such good teachers that Balanchine got mo- many of his early students and some of his early dancers for the New York City Ballet and from his other ballet companies from them. And they both taught at his school. So he had a lot of respect for them. So there were others, but the, the European teachers who came in were the ones who s- established um, a kind of a shared vocabulary and set standards. Some of them, for instance, would come in mean, and they would be like, okay, we are actually going to do bar exercises because not all ballet classes in America had that. So they brought the rigor and the discipline and the language of dance that we were talking about from Europe and they brought it to the United States where it changed to some degree, but they, it really was very important, the impact of European teachers, particularly through the 1930s, I would say. So, so these, these teachers coming in and teaching more proper ballet classes, were they coming in and specifically focused on pre-professionals? Had they made it yet to the recreational part of dance or was that, how, how did that come about? Was, were they going straight to the pre-professional students or were they moving from there? Well, the answer is yes. <laughs> in other words, they did both. Okay. Some of them were very focused on training more advanced students. So Michelle Fokine, for instance, who had mm-hmm. been a big star and was a really radical kind of male choreographer focused on um, male bodies and movement in ballet. And um, he changed costuming. He, he was a pretty radical performer at the time. He did not have beginner ballet classes at his studio. He set up shop in a kind of mansion on Riverside Avenue in uh, New <laughs> York, and, and he did not have Are beginner. Are we on Riverside? No, we're on West, right, we're on West End. Right yes, now. <laughs> actually, it's not. We're not so far from where that was. Um, he w- did not have beginner classes, but then there were other European teachers like Veronine Vestov and Sonia Sarova who came over, and together they started. They actually created what they called baby classes, which were the forerunner of what we would now call creative movement. Okay. Um, So there were there were teachers who did both, and there were teachers who thought if we don't start them when they're really young, then we'll never get anywhere for people who want to be professionals, and also they won't ever really learn to do things right. And then there were those who came and said, you know, my goal here is really primarily to get a company together or to get you know trained dancers for companies. Yeah, and And, they did both. Just to clarify for anybody that doesn't know exactly what we're talking about, so with creative movement class. There, there's uh, the idea that 
there is an age that is too young to actually teach codified ballet technique to. So the goal is really to take younger, younger kids into classrooms and to get them moving and to sort of like pique their imagination and to create imagery and get their bodies to move. And then also to get a little bit of coordination in, but without teaching specifically like first position uh, with the legs and the arms, tendus, jetés and all of that. And then there are some schools of thought where there are teachers that think that there's, there's no point in, in doing that. Just get straight, straight into the ballet technique. And it doesn't matter if they're four or five or six, that they should be starting facing the bar and first position and going into demi-plié, all that kind of stuff. So there were arguments about that then too. And really? so the European teachers did all of those things. And another thing European teachers did was move to Hollywood and get involved with the early movie business <laughs> because the movie industry, if you look at early movies, but first silent movies, um, and then you know when you get into the talkie era after 1927, um, there was a lot of ballet, there a lot of so dance movies. Dance. And you yeah. had, you had European teachers teaching. That's, that's who was there. They, you know, at least for that first generation, they're the ones who taught them. And so um, L.A. became a big center for ballet um, because of its relationship to Hollywood and the motion picture industry, as wow. they would have called it at the time. Sometimes they tried to teach the movie stars themselves. That often didn't go well. If you look at the first talkie picture, The Jazz Singer, in 1927, the main female protagonist is a ballet dancer, and she can't move at all. <laughs> so they tried. They couldn't even prop her up. I mean, it's very obvious when you look at it now. You know, the people behind her are well-trained dancers. She's not so much... But then there were also people who became movie stars who were very serious ballet students, people like Paulette Goddard and later um, Sid Charisse, who actually toured with the Ballet Rose de Monte Carlo, one mm. of the touring companies. So ballet became, was an important part of the early decades of the movie industry as well. Wow. And European teachers were involved with that too. So I think it's safe to say that without that European influence, American ballet would have developed much more slowly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so in, in that whole conversation, you started talking a little bit about New York City Ballet and mm-hmm. George Balanchine. And, uh, Obviously, a very, very famous figure in dance. Uh, he created the School of American Ballet, where I trained in New York City Ballet. Um, and I, I noticed in one of your chapters, there was a, an organization that you mentioned that I've heard before. But if I'm correct, they're not as, they're not involved in the same way. I don't know if they actually still exist, but you, you have a chapter that talks about the Ford Foundation. So I wanted to hear what, why, why you felt the need to talk about the Ford Foundation okay. in the book. Okay, so the Ford Foundation was, you know, it comes out of the Henry Ford Motor Company. They made so much money that like many other large companies and, you know, big magnets, people like Henry Ford and then his um, son after him, they wanted to take that money and do things with it in the world. So the Carnegie Foundation is another example and the Ford Foundation is one. And the Ford Foundation was interested in the arts and helped support the arts. And starting in the, this is, a def, this is well after World War II, so we're shifting time okay. periods here, but the Ford Foundation gave the theater community in the United States a huge sum of money. And then there was a guy there named um, McNeil Lowry, who was a friend of Lincoln Kirstein, who was an associate of George Balanchine. And he wanted to, work, he was interested in the Ford Foundation helping to support ballet in America. And they were trying to figure out how best to do that. And the, to make a long story short, if you want the long story, read the book, but the Ford Foundation promised millions and millions and millions of dollars to ballet institutions in 1963. And that was millions in the 60s. 60s. It's not millions in the, the, well, it'll be the 2020s by the time that you guys are listening to this. Yes, it was the largest single grant to arts organizations in United States history. Yeah, I've heard heard so much about the the wonderful generosity of the organization. And the thing is, what they were doing was they they really, this transformed ballet in America 
uh, in many ways because the money went for a number of things. It went to certain institutions, it went to many schools to help strengthen the schools, but it also primarily went to scholarships to schools all over the United States to send those really promising students they had to either the School of American Ballet in New York, that was George Balanchine's school, or the San Francisco Ballet School, which got basically the West Coast contingent, yeah. um, anyone who was west of the Rockies. These were the two most prominent, um, most successful in many ways ballet schools, you know, professionally oriented ballet schools in the United States, and they got a lot of money. And then the Ford Foundation also supported eight different ballet companies, and almost almost all of those companies, not 100% of them, had some relationship to George Balanchine. So they, the Ford Foundation, they essentially were headhunters for, ball, uh, for future ballet dancers. Yes, in many ways. And they, they, people, they, they went out and they scouted. They sent scouts out from the School of American Ballet. And some very, very famous da dancers were scouted this way. For instance, um, Diana Adams, who was a principal dancer mm -hmm. with the New York City Ballet, went to Cincinnati, saw a girl that looked, you know, like she had some promise. Her name was Roberta Sue Ficker. And later she was Suzanne Farrell. Yep, so, I've, I've heard that story. So yeah. that's, that's one example. Um, that was actually before these Ford Foundation grants, right before. But it was, it was doing something like that, which Ford supported, which made them think that they could give money in a way that would really build up both companies and um, schools and really just improve the standard of teaching and performance and increase the number of ballet schools and companies across the United States. And it was really a transformational thing, um, but there was some resentment that so much of it was going toward Balanchine-centered um, activities and the modern dance community was hugely up in arms. They didn't get, get any of this money. And other institutions like American Ballet Theater, for instance, the other major prestigious company in New York, did not initially get money from Ford because they didn't have a school at the time, too. Right? Well, the co the company didn't get the money either. The, the finances at that moment, their finances were in such dire straits that basically Ford said to them, "Get your act together a little bit, and then we'll talk." And they yeah. did end up. I mean, the Ford. I mean, Ford that makes sense. It's yes. like you, you you don't want most people. <laughs> that's why they want to throw money at an organization if they're not sure if it's going to stay right. around. So that, and that was the defense. The Ford Foundation basically gave money to strength where they saw it. Um, but it was controversial then and remains somewhat controversial. It certainly had a huge impact on the way ballet developed um, across the United States from that period. So the Ford Foundation, that, that's why there's a chapter about that, because it's really transformational in American ballet. But the, the Ford Foundation, if I'm correct, it doesn't... It doesn't exists in that capacity today? It does exist, in it, but it doesn't, it does its grants differently now. Is it mostly just company centric? Is it, have they stepped away from schools or? Um, not exactly. They just, they, they do, our arts funding in general is just different now. It's yes, a longer it is, conversation. Yeah. Um, are, are there any organizations that are doing, like I said, that kind of headhunter for pre-professionals? Now, obviously every school now has their own, the, ma the major schools, so not recreational schools necessarily, but uh, many schools, they have their own form of scholarships, but is there any organization in the country right now that is doing that? Not, a, a, not in the same way. Yeah. Not in the I let's go out so. and see who's out there kind of way. The yeah. original grants were for 10 years. Some of them were renewed. Um, there were other companies, like I said, like the American Ballet Theater, the Joffrey, who, that did get money for, for some of this later, mm -hmm. um, but it, not in the same way. Okay. Yeah. Aw, well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, it is. Well, arts funding is just down everywhere, as we know. It is very true. It is very true. All right. I, so I want to check out just a few more things before we get to the end of this episode. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I thought that we should definitely talk about because it's so relevant today and uh, I feel like it was, I feel like because we've been talking so much about race and dance today, that I almost thought that it was just something that was ignored 
back in the past, but you, you have an entire chapter dedicated to it. And I was just wondering if we can, if we can talk about what you shared and what you learned through your research and, and that got into this book. Okay. That's actually one of the longest chapters in the book because right. there's a very troubled racial history of ballet in the United States. Um, ballet was really for a long time just only open to white people. Uh, however, I should say that I found evidence as early as the 1890s that African-American communities all over the United States, if they reached middle-class status, actually would sometimes hire itinerant ballet teachers to come in and teach their children for at least a while. So that ballet was always seen as this aspirational activity. So was, was it a segregation thing or yes. was it, so it, it, it wasn't an access thing? Well, it's two, it's two actually that I'm glad you, I'm glad you put it like that because there are two issues. There's the segregation issue in the sense that the United States was a very segregated country. And so even though this is a terrible history, when you have a situation where African-American and white kids are not in the same public schools, it's not surprising that they wouldn't be in the same ballet schools. Um, and that is something that gradually changed over time, um, although much, much, much too slowly. And there's still all kinds of issues there. Um, many companies now have diversity initiatives to try to improve this, and they have made progress. But the, the they have. But sometimes, sometimes it's it's. It's challenging because uh, it, the issue is brought up, people want it to change, but then sometimes it feels like they're catering to just do it to please people and it's not as genuine. But again, that's a whole yes. other podcast. <laughs> yes. I don't want to get too off track. And then, but there's <laughs> another issue which has to do with the aesthetic of ballet and the kind of ra the racism that's in that aesthetic of yes. ballet. Because a lot of the discussion when you're talking about why there weren't many professional African-American dancers says that, oh, you know, African-Americans don't look right. You know, they're going to mess up the core line if one of them has a different skin color. Or yeah. African-Americans have body types that are wrong, all wrong and for ballet. And that is a very, you know, kind of insidious it's, it's problem. It's insidious <laughs> and I think it's a very tricky conversation because one thing that I really do love about ballet is it's it's very traditional and it, it's also very hard and only certain bodies can put can be put in the way that ballet is is done. Um, so there's there's almost like a untouchable feeling that makes it feel so cool to be a part of as a professional but then at the same time you go okay well is it the feet like or the common thing that people say about black dancers is well their muscles built very bulky uh their their legs are better made for jumping but they they end up bulking up and obviously that's a generalization um that is commonly said but the ballet aesthetic is long and lift um and not as muscular and so it's it's always been a very hard conversation to have because you're taught the tradition of it and you go, okay, well, this is against the tradition, but like you were saying, there's an ingrained racism in that conversation. But so if ballet was built based off of a white body type and how that typically, uh, I want to make sure I'm saying this. That's why I'm pausing because I want to say it exactly the way I want it, want it to be said. But the musculature, that's the, the idea that the musculature forms a certain way based off of genetics. Is it okay to ask the same of that from somebody of a different race or is it keeping them away just so that they can't be a part of it? 
Well, I think one thing about the ballet world more generally has to reckon with, and again, this is a complicated conversation. We can't, the two of us can't just have it's right five now. five-hour episode. Yes, uh, but I, I do <laughs> want to say that there's no such thing as a white body type. White people or people who are recognized yes. or identified as white come from all over the world, and so do people of color. or Black people come from all over the world. There's no such thing as a black body or a white body. Yes. But that has been used as an excuse. The idea of that has been used as an excuse. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody would say that someone, for instance, with my terrible flexibility could be a professional ballet dancer and I'm I look white right it has nothing to do with my color it's something mm-hmm. different so bodily facility might be an acceptable standard but what color somebody is is not an acceptable and, standard and, and to they don't they don't track the same way and it's just really yeah. important to keep that in mind yeah and and I, I think that and this is going to go back to the access conversation yeah. but I think that one of the reasons that people have been able to say that is because there's a much greater volume of of white dancers that have access yes. or have had access to ballet, um, but you haven't had dancers of color that have had the same access. So maybe there are dancers that are that have black skin or they're Asian or they're Indian, and maybe they do have the perfect body type for ballet, but maybe their family didn't couldn't afford to That's put right. them through training and training is extremely, extremely expensive. Or maybe they just weren't allowed to dance at all because they, you know, in, in earlier periods, they would not have been able, literally would not have been able to take ballet class. Yeah. Nobody would teach them, no studio would take them, which is why there's a whole ecosystem of African-American ballet studios, as I mentioned earlier, that, prop, that you know, crop up in places with large, large enough populations to support them. Yeah, this is a complicated conversation. Um, that, well, I can't you know, wait to read the yeah, chapter. That's, because, it's a long chapter because it's a difficult conversation. Well, and like we said, like you and I, I feel like yeah. we need to sit here for a couple yes. of hours and just discuss this one topic. So yeah. it makes sense to me that that's going yeah. to be something that's filled with a lot of information. I do want to just say, though, about that, that there, there have been exceptions, right? There's always exceptions. And these are people you know who have had all kinds of experiences. Raven Wilkinson, for instance, who recently oh, yeah, passed away, mm-hmm. um, was an African-American dancer who was with denied. Dance Theater of Harlem, right? No, she was before Dance Theater of Harlem. No, really? she was with the Ballet Rostamont. Monte Carlo, yes, um, but yes, she yes, originally, I mean, she was told in some cases she was relatively light skinned. And so she was told, you know, well, if you, if you wear white makeup, then we'll hire you, mm-hmm. which is something that other dancers like Janet Collins, who was a premier, uh, prima ballerina with the Metropolitan Opera Ballet in the fifties also was told yeah. that originally. That was very common. And they would go touring with these companies and they wouldn't be allowed to perform in the South. So th- there were people who, who paved the way, but they had to fight really hard and they, they should be remembered and honored by having more access. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just very, very fascinating. It's, uh, it's so relevant and it, it's, it's crazy to think that it was so relevant in, in the past, but that it's, it, it keeps on coming up and it, it's almost sometimes recycled the conversation. But I do feel that in the last five, five or so years, not even 10 years, not the past decade, but I feel like we've made some progress in the past five years. Not, not, immense crazy progress yeah. but we, we have made some positive progress yeah. progress in the dance world with that. I think that's right and as someone who has read all of dance magazine through I can tell you that there's been certainly more discussion there in the past five years than yeah, you, previously you've seen it all at this point <laughs> okay so we, earlier we were talking about our, our backgrounds in dance and how, how we came to take class and I was sharing with you uh, what it was like to be a boy entering mm-hmm. a recreational dance school in a local community and I was just wondering because I, I, in one of your chapters you it's dedicated to boys so mm-hmm. what about the boys well there are always boys in ballet it's like the big lie right that girl the girls <laughs> have ever taken ballet that it's only recently there have always been boys in ballet it is also true that there are always more girls than boys in ballet that i mean there's no denying that 
Um, in America, unlike in other contexts, dancing was, as you said, sometimes seen as effeminate. Um, there was also an association of male dancers or boys in ballet class as being gay, which is obviously ridiculous. And, yeah, and I've, I've dedicated <laughs> an entire podcast. Yes. If you want to go back and listen to my pod chat episode, uh, I have one on toxic masculinity. I have another one on, on boys dancing. Yeah. Um, but I say that ballet is chivalrous because it teaches you how to treat and respect <laughs> another human being uh and but for some reason it, it just always has gotten turned on the yeah. because we learn how to move with fluidity and lightness that it's more feminine because those are considered effeminate qualities in our culture and society there's an irony in that because of course in terms of institutional terms the people who have most often started companies been the big choreographers are now the artistic directors tend much more often to be men despite the fact that there are way more women in dance yes so that's that this is another issue like, and it's another very long time <laughs> It is, um, but there have always been boys in ballet class, and there have been it, it. There are certain kind of elements of pop culture that have actually helped open ballet class more to boys. One example is the movie Billy Elliot from 2000 or 2001, which movie. it's a great movie. I had to put on the captions to, to watch it because I couldn't <laughs> yes. understand what they were saying. It's a pretty thick a accent. Movie. It's yeah. a great movie. And also a great, great Broadway show. Just mm-hmm. wonderful. Um, I saw it in London, um, but in England, in the United States, but especially in England, the number of boys going into ballet class after that movie came out, mm-hmm. where all the people who saw the movie were rooting for this kid to convince his father and his community that it was okay to do ballet for a boy. And that had real world, that had a real world impact. They followed, the year after that movie, the Royal Ballet in London had more boy applicants than girls for the first time wow. ever. They didn't take them all, but it's still, yeah. it was, it, that was a real signal change. Um, and then there are other things that have helped bring more boys into ballet. I was laughing before when you talked about being a soldier in the Nutcracker, yeah. because those kinds of roles, being a soldier <laughs> or a mouse, you know, things that don't look girly, that have fun yes. costumes, and where your face may not be seen, where sometimes very appealing. Yeah. Um, to boys in ballet. So there's always been, there have always been boys in ballet, but they have had a, their own challenges to deal with. Well, and I think the interesting thing about boys in ballet is that the issue is not boys in ballet. Right. The issue is the boys who do ballet when they're not in ballet. That's an interesting way to put it. Yes, I yeah. think that's right. And I think also some of the um, defense of ballet, of boys in ballet, or of the boys who take ballet, has often been to um, compare ballet to a sport, right? You know, uh, you're an athlete. Nuts. You're an athlete. You know, this is, and of course, of course, ballet is an athletic enterprise. There's no question about yes. that. But focusing too much on that takes away everything else that ballet is. And exactly. it's, it's reductive. And, and I, think, I think now, by the time, now that we're in the 21st century, that should not be the primary defense yes. for and, boys and, in ballet. And part of the conversation that I had in the, the podcast episode yeah. that I did on toxic masculinity and dance was, it was, it was on the, the fringe of uh, a major issue that happened at New York City Ballet. Um, and essentially, the things that people say to try to make boys feel more comfortable being a dance studio, it also sort of gives them uh, a bad uh, a bad defense mechanism to be like, oh, well, I take ballet, but I'm with girls all day long, and I get to touch them in physical ways that you don't get to touch them. It, it really it, it creates a very even though it may build the confidence to keep the boys in dance initially it can also create a cycle of abuse yes that, that can happen. i have a quote that's almost exactly that in the book actually <laughs> we're on the same page yes. and then there's also the issue that because i mean obviously many of the men the men in ballet professional dancers are all incredibly talented of course they are but because there are fewer of them there's also a sense of entitlement and it might not be quite as hard 
um, to get to that professional status if that's what you want. If you're um, a boy and then a man, then if you're a girl and then a woman, because there are just so many more young women oh, who are absolutely. vying for the it's, same it's, jobs. It's so much easier to be a, a boy in dance. Now, it doesn't mean that when you get to the professional levels that it is easy, but if, if you look at the numbers, it's it's probably yeah. like ten per one in ten. Uh, if you look at the guys, there's like one guy for every every 10 girls. And that starts early with the kind of thing you mentioned before, the strategy that many ballet studio owners do, which is to give free tuition to boys in ballet to keep them there. So there's a sense of entitlement that even the nicest boys can sometimes succumb to that also becomes an issue. So there are a lot of gender issues around ballet, both as the art form and the access and the experience yes. of it. Um, okay, so I'm getting towards the end of my questions. Uh, do you have any opinions on dance becoming a university situation uh, where dancers get degrees in performance, pedagogy, or choreography? Okay, so I have a chapter on that too. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why I had that yes, question. Yes, so that's actually very interesting. Um, there, there's a long history of ballet in uh, university settings, although it's not as long as modern dance. That mo Most college dance programs for the first many decades of dance college dance programs were almost exclusively modern and not ballet. Um, there's all kinds of reasons for that that I'm not going to go into now, but there, there was a troubled history there too. Um, ballet these days, it's, it, there's, I think there's a debate even within the ballet world, certainly more professional dancers are getting college degrees than used to be the case. So that's, that is something that's significant. There are now at least a handful of ballet majors in some universities, places like Indiana University, for instance, or the University of Utah with older ballet programs where you can get just as good training as basically anywhere else and then go on to a professional career in a major company. So there's that. There's also the, one of the reasons why there's been more ballet in the past 40 years or so in the, at the university level is because more kids have taken ballet class and they want to continue doing it when they get to college. Then the question becomes, though, for the dance departments, do they focus on professional level training, which would exclude almost everybody who's not a dance major, even though you've got these hordes of kids coming in who might want to keep dancing? Or do you have a less conservatory type program, but then that won't be as good a training ground for people who do want to be professionals? It's almost impossible to do both at the same time. And so many dance programs have to decide what their focus will be. And that is an ongoing issue at the, yeah. higher, at the level of higher education. I, I think one of, one of the conversations that was very common, and it, I mean, it's still very common when it comes to ballet dancers uh, going into university programs, is that it's not so much that the university programs aren't legitimate to train dancers, but it's the idea that it's such a short career that if you could have start the career at the age of 18, that you're, you would go straight into it, you'd have more time. Where if you go into a university program, you might lose three to four years off of your career. But I think that a part of the reason that uh, today it's become more acceptable to try to get a degree in ballet and, and then go have your career after is because of all the advancements that we've made in physical therapy and exercise science and cross training all of that. So dancers' bodies are lasting longer, which set, which makes it okay to spend a couple of years uh, going and dancing in college. And maybe I, one thing that I noticed with a lot of dancers is that most of them don't go to college and get one degree. They often get a dual degree in something that's in the arts and then something that's uh, completely outside the art, so they have like a fallback degree. Right, and I think, um, you know, they're, they're, this is an area where there's been change over time. George Balanchine and Agnes DeMille both used to say, definitely do not go to, go to college if you want to be a <laughs> professional. But that was a long time ago, and things yeah. have changed. So, that, yeah. you know, I, whether you want to call it progress or not is up to you, but mm -hmm. I do think that's an area where there's been a lot of change. But more programs are focused on performance now than used to be the case, mm -hmm. and that's also kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, is there anything that you feel that you wanted to talk about the book 
uh, that I didn't I didn't touch upon. Um, I think we've covered most of it. I just want to um, briefly mention two other things. Okay. One is that one is just to kind of historically talk about when ballet class became more common. And there's two major turning points for that. One is after um, World War One, and really after the Russian Revolution, <laughs> when the Ballet Russe um, was touring the United States, and some of the dancers would then stay in the United States after they finished their performance careers and become teachers. That meant that there were studios all over the place, in some very unexpected places like Phoenix or Tucson, which were small little cities at the time, or Tulsa. Mm-hmm. You know, just people happened to settle there for a variety of reasons, and they started teaching. Um, some of those. Some of their schools eventually actually became companies, but that was much later. And so there were Russian dancers, but not not always Russian, but often Russian dancers. Certainly they were perceived as Russian, and Americans who danced with them were told to make their name sound Russian, who <laughs> toured, toured all over the United States. And so they were they were everywhere. They were big opera houses like in San Francisco, but they were also, you know, barnstorming places like Kalamazoo, Michigan, sometimes mm-hmm. just a few days apart. And so a mass audience of Americans saw ballet in the 20s. And this happened again a little bit during World War II and in the 40s into the 50s. And in both cases, the result was that way more kids wanted to take ballet class. They would go see a performance somewhere and they'd say, oh, I want to do that. I want to learn how to do that. And so those are both turning points, inflection points about when American kids and Americans in general really began to see ballet not just as something to watch, but something to do. And they had more access to it because these yes. dancers, their short careers, and they were retiring, Absolutely. their their knowledge was in dance specifically. So it's a natural thing. Many people, when they retire from performing, they go into teaching. Into teaching. So those the, the 20s and then again the 40s into the 50s. And it, it, after World War II, also with the rise of the, kind of baby, the baby boomers and more middle-class Americans who had some disposable income to send their kids to ballet class, that also was a mass expansion. Hmm. So that's one kind of set of turning points. And the other one I do want to mention just briefly is that um, is Title IX, which you may be familiar with, some of you, as it's a federal civil rights act, um, a law actually, that says that federally funded institutions cannot, educational institutions cannot discriminate on the basis of sex. So a whole long story, which I will not tell here, but the effect, one of the major effects was to open up athletic opportunities to girls and to women, like softball and soccer and you know, things that had been clo- just completely closed to girls and to women before that. It had a huge impact on girls playing sports. And the more girls played sports, the fewer of them took ballet class. And so one of the after effects of the ballet world and the dance world more generally was, uh-oh, you know, we're losing all these kids. They, you know, they want to go do other things. They don't just automatically go to ballet like they used to maybe we should think about making ourselves more like a sport and more competitive. And this is where the rise of recreational type ballet competitions comes from. Interesting. I had no idea. Yes, that there's that a whole really long like history the, to this. Yeah. Basis for That's that. where it comes from. It's like, oh dear, if we're losing all these people. Maybe we better start handing out trophies. Wow. So until the early 1980s, you only had ballet competitions for people who were either already professional or just their, to like validate their credentials. Right. Or on the way to being professional, yeah. international competitions that people like Barishnikov would win, not mm-hmm. normal people in a studio down the block and that has had a huge huge impact on ballet class in america Mm -hmm. and studios that were longer lasting had to decide would they become competition studios so arabesque in dallas the storefront studio i mentioned before that i went to for years 
was certain, there was no such thing as a competition studio when I was there in the late 70s through the mid 80s. But now it is a big competition studio. You yeah. look at their website and that is what they do. Mm-hmm. And my, um, when, I, when I was training at my recreational studio that I, I grew up at, initially we were just a recreational school. We danced and then a couple of us got really interested in the competition mm-hmm. circuit. And that's actually where I got my start wanting right. to be a professional because I was stepping out of my own classrooms in my recreational studio and I was getting to see other dancers. And some of them were better than me. Some of them were worse than me. But I was like, I don't want to be in the middle. I want to be at the top. Right. And that actually pushed me. I didn't even realize it at the time pushed me to have a career, but it, it was one of the driving forces for me to, to do that. So that's the most positive kind of outcome that can come from competi- the competition world in mm-hmm. ballet. There are less positive outcomes yes, as absolutely. well. And so um, that's uh, that's something else I just wanted to mention. It's another mm-hmm. kind of turning point because now people who are going to, kids who are going to stay in ballet class past the ages of seven or eight, the families basically have to make a decision. Do they want a competition studio or not? There are still some that don't do that for a variety of reasons, but it's now a decision that most people have to make and that it just was yes. not, a, not a thing yeah. <laughs> to before earlier. That's a, that's a really good podcast idea. I don't know if I've actually done like a competition school versus a yes. pre-professional versus a recreational, but I work with a lot of competition students. Yeah. I think that's, you might've given me an idea. Yeah, well, you. And, and <laughs> if, you, if you, if you do that, then you can send them to my, I have actually two, two podcasts on the history of that um, you from the past. Yes. That's funny. We were talking earlier and as podcasters, uh, well, for me personally, like I, as a podcaster, I don't, really listen to podcasts you would think that i would be like researching but i feel like I, I like i said i'm not saying busy anymore i'm not it's not that i'm so busy it's just i'm so tasked i don't have time to listen to podcasts um but yeah i should definitely check that out um all right one last thing and then i gotta catch a bus i'm yes. going down to philly for, for for new year's um but the last thing i just wanted to talk about very quickly was uh the biggest challenges facing ballet classes today well, I'll be interested to hear you talk about this too. From the historian's perspective, I mean, and, and from the kind of analytical perspective, I think one of the biggest challenges really still has to do with race and diversity. Mm-hmm. These are still major, major issues. And, you know, as you, as you said, sometimes the motives for what people try to do are, not, are kind of murky. Um, but still, the, the issue of access more generally, whether mm-hmm. that's across class lines or racial boundaries or whatever it is, I think that is still a huge issue and one that is being more addressed, as we said, than other some places. But there's still a whole lot of work to do there. And the, the fact that ballet is seen in some quarters as this kind of elitist, exclusionary Bougie. activity <laughs> is a problem. And it should, doesn't have to be that way. And so that, I yeah. think, to me, is, one, is something that from the history still is not resolved. Yeah. Yeah, for, for me personally, I mean, I, I mimic a lot of what you just said, uh, and I, so I'm not going to repeat that, but for, for me, I, one thing that I, I've noticed is the, the, the challenges of like treating dancers properly, because in, in the training for ballet, sometimes it can, or at least in the past, there's been a lot of physical and mental abuse that has gone into it, because it's the idea that you don't have to do it every day. But if you want to be good at it, you have to have some motivation. And when kids are younger, like sometimes they're tired, sometimes they're, they have other things on their mind, sometimes hormones get in the way, and teachers will get really intense with them. Um, but then that continues, that system of, of especially emotional abuse, it continues. That's one of the things that, that I wanted to mention. But the other thing is uh, something I actually just recently talked about with Broadway Dance Center because I, I wrote, uh, I, I did an interview for a blog and it was about gender. Uh, so as I was saying previously that ballet is, it's very traditional and part of it being so traditional aside from with the race card that we were talking about is the fact that 
it's very it's very gendered you have boys and girls they start training together and then when they make it into professional schools they're separated and as their hormones start to kick in for the boys their muscular changes they're more into jumps and turning and lifting for the women they do point work and they uh they they move faster and their legs go higher so they focus more on adagio but what happens when there is a dancer that doesn't feel like they necessarily fit in that box of male or female or maybe they are male and or they identify as male and they feel like well i really prefer to do the female roles um so a lot of times when i'm teaching at broadway dance center people tell me that they feel like Somebody told me your body's not right for ballet, so don't do it. Um, but I feel that ballet is for everybody. Mm -hmm. And just because you aren't necessarily going to have a career in, in dance doesn't mean that you shouldn't be doing it. And there's, there's a lot of value in recreational dance. Uh, aside from the physical value, the fitness value, um, you, you learn coordination. But, but for the most part, you learn appreciation for the arts. And especially in the United States, where the arts are funded by private donors, uh, funding is very low. And it's the idea that like you learn the discipline, you go get a good college degree, you end up sitting in the audience, you or you end up becoming a physical therapist, and then you take care of dancers. And then if you have a job where you make a lot of money and you can give back and you can support the art form, I find that people that are taking recreational classes are actually the ones that make the dance world exist. Where, where ballet dancers, we, we have the privilege of getting to perform on stage for the audience, but really if without recreational dance in America, I don't think that we would truly have dance in the United States because everybody that exists in these classes, they're the ones that have an appreciation for dance and without an audience, there, there is no way that we could continue in our art form. Okay. And as somebody who came, you know, had that experience, right, of being a recreational dancer, but then keeping ballet as part of my life, even you know, even before I was writing this book, as someone who always wanted to go see performances and read about ballet, I think that's very true. It can really yeah. shape a life. Yeah. In the best way. Oh, I love it when things end on such a good note. So, okay, so as we told you beforehand, uh, you made it to the end. So, we have a little special thing that Melissa is going to share with you right now. Yes. So I have a very special offer for all of our podcast listeners. Um, this book, Ballet Class in American History, is being published by Oxford University Press. And I have a 30% discount code to give to Ooh. all of you. So if you go to Oxford University Press's website, you know, you're all perfectly capable of doing that. Do a search for Ballet Class in American History by Melissa R. Clapper. That's K-L-A-P-P-E-R. And here is a 30% discount code that you put in. A-A-F-L-Y-G-6. That's A-A-F-L-Y-G-6. To save 30% on Ballet Class in American History by Melissa R. Clapper. Ooh, yeah. And if you, if you need the exact website, it's www.oup.com. And then you put a forward, uh, what's that thing slash. called? Thank you. A forward slash and then academic. So again, that's www.oup, that's O, not zero, dot com. And it's forward slash academic. And of course, the book's also available on Amazon at every place. Books are sold, but the discount will only work on Oxford University Press's website. Cool. Oh, I'm so excited for you. And thank you so much for uh, 
allowing me to be just a small part of your journey in creating this book. I really, I, I feel very grateful to be a part of it. Well, thank you so much. It's been great to, you know, have this relationship and long may it last. Thank I you. know we keep on getting together. It's just another reason for us to hang out. That's so, right. <laughs> uh, so thank you everybody so much for listening to pot chat, talking dance and, and pirouettes from the past. And we are now going to transition to our regular outros so that you know who we are, where we come from and all of that jazz or ballet. Thank you guys. Thanks. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Pod to Chat Talking Dance. If there are any topics you'd like to hear me talk about, please feel free to reach out to me via my website contact page at www.barrycorlis.com. Again, that's www.barrykerollis.com. You can also reach out on there if you'd like to become a sponsor for our podcasts or to book master classes in ballet or contemporary technique for choreography or speaking engagements. Also, if you would like to learn more about Movement Headquarters Ballet Company, you can visit www.movementhqballet.org. I hope you enjoyed listening in and talking dance with me. If you enjoyed this chat, please feel free to share, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes. Every bit of extra visibility helps keep these podcasts running. And if this didn't fulfill your dance fix, check out my sister podcasts on the Premier Dance Network. If you want to connect with me to see where I'm choreographing, teaching, and what I'm doing in my everyday life, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, where my name is B. Corollis, or on Twitter at Bariscos. Also, be sure to subscribe to my blogs. I have Life of a Freelance Dancer, and you can find that at lifeofafreelancedancer.blogspot.com. And I wrote on there for five years about working as a nationally touring freelance artist and independent contractor. I also have Dancing Offstage, and you can find that at dancingoffstage.wordpress.com. And I spoke on there about the post-performance careers of professional dancers. I also have a YouTube channel if you want to check out my choreography, and you can find that by going to youtube.com, going in the search bar, and typing in B. Corollis. Thanks for listening in to Pod of Chat. I hope you return two weeks from this Friday to talk, dance with me, and remember to go out and support your local dance scene.